0: Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garton. Recently, a 73-year-old woman came to me and asked to speak to me about an important decision in her life. She was suffering from an illness that would eventually take her life in a very painful manner. She was suffering not from cancer, not from any of the usual diseases, but from a neurological disease that is uh, best categorized as similar to uh, ALS, but not defined in the same way that ALS is. This woman had decided that she wanted to end her life and she and her family had looked into the possibilities of ending her life according to the legal criteria established in the province of Ontario and realized that they did not meet that criteria. The path of her illness was such that uh, from the outside, She looked as if she was functioning well in society, though she was exhibiting signs of dementia, not being able to uh, grasp words, not being able to remember. And though her driving license had been uh, removed from her, um, the rules concerning um, end of life, medically assisted death, did not seem to fit exactly to her situation. So she had decided to go to a European country and end her life. She had come to me as a rabbi to discuss, uh, not whether she should follow through on her decision, but how Judaism saw the decision that she was going to make. A terrible situation, a terrible choice. She knew that she was going to die in a manner in which she was not pleased about, and she could see what the future held for her, unlike many of us who uh, have no forewarning about how we shall die or when the end of life will be. And so she asked me to share with her some of the important considerations Judaism has for these conversations. The word euthanasia is derived from the Greek eu, "eu," meaning well, good, or pleasant, and thanotos, meaning death. This term has gained popularity in recent discussions on medical ethics. The question that has confounded medical ethics experts and ethicists alike is whether it is permissible to hasten the death actively or passively, of someone whose life is deemed either by their own admission or by the assessment of others, unfit or unwanted. Terminating the life of such an individual is viewed as an act of mercy by some as it relieves them of the need to continue living an undesired life and provides them with what is considered a better alternative, death. Certainly in the case of the woman that I've shared with you, some would argue that she had not yet reached the stage of an undesired life. And therefore um, this was a precipitous decision. Now it would seem on the surface that this discussion of ending life early is foreign to Jewish religion, which celebrates life. And it has been demonstrated repeatedly that Judaism is a life affirming religion which considers the preservation of life one of its most esteemed and cherished ideals. How then, I thought, can Judaism entertain the thought of legitimizing the willful termination of life? The question is complicated, though, by another fundamental principle. More than just the preservation of life, Jews have been told through their tradition to treat people with dignity, honor, and love so that the quality of their lives is enriched. Judaism has taught that God is kind and compassion and instructs us to emulate these attributes in our interaction with others. Thus, we are given a series of laws which are meant to inculcate the virtues of kindness and mercy, including charity, visiting the sick, comforting the bereavement, Judaism, in its lengthy list of commandments, wishes to instill the value of life, and of no less importance, the value of enabling others to live a good life. Combine, these two attitudes are the hallmark of the ideal religious Jewish life. There are occasions when these two ends conflict. If a person is suffering from an acute illness which is diagnosed as terminal, regardless of where they are in the process, with no cure in sight, and enduring or potentially enduring excruciating pain, and request to end their misery. How are we as Jews to respond? On the other hand, life has tremendous worth. So how can the termination of life be justified? On the other Having appreciated Judaism's concern for the plight of others who are suffering and the consequent need to be kind and compassionate, how can we ignore the plea of someone who seeks relief from his misery? This is why medically assisted suicide, or euthanasia is sometimes called, an act of killing, and sometimes simultaneously an act of mercy, possess such a serious moral dilemma for the Jewish community, and I am sure for others as well. So to begin our exploration, we must start where we usually do, and that is with Jewish text. And so I want to share with you um, three of the preeminent texts that are used in Judaism to begin our conversation. One is from the book of Job, chapter 1, verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord will take away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And from chapter 14 of Job. Man's days are determined. You have decreed the number of his months and have set limits He cannot exceed. (coughs) Both those texts certainly indicate that the nature of our life is in God's hands. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, we read a very famous text, which many of you are aware of, um, and it was made into a very famous song, and I will read it to you and remind you of the exact text in a moment. This is from Ecclesiastes Kohelet in Hebrew, chapter 3. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die A time to plant and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. Time to weep and a time to laugh. These selections represent, of course, the common religious understanding of God as the decider of life and death. God gives life and God takes away life. God does so, according to these texts, and according to most religious traditions, according to God's schedule. There is an appointed time for us all to die, and the decision is not in our hands, these texts say. So, one would ask, as a religious person, do these texts preclude the possibility of euthanasia? What about in cases where death is simply being prolonged? or in cases where death is inevitable or even imminent, and suffering could be avoided. The Jewish tradition wanted to answer those questions from its earliest days, and as is the Jewish tradition, it answered them in the early legal texts of the third century and further. So let me read to you what may seem to be an obscure text, but hopefully I can explain it to you. This is from a third century text, third century of the Common Era, uh, known as Mishnah. The Mishnah was written by scholars in Israel and compiled and edited by Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi, or so tradition tells us. Listen carefully. If debris fell on someone, though it is questionable whether or not he is there, whether he is alive or dead, or whether he is an Israelite or a heathen, one should open, even on Shabbat, the heap of debris for his sake. If one finds him alive, one should remove the debris in order to rescue him. If he is dead, one should leave him there until the Sabbath is over. And A continuation of the conversation in the later text written between the 3rd and 6th century of the Common Era. This one from Babylonia known as the Talmud responding to what I just read to you it says, if one finds him alive one should remove the debris in order to rescue him. That is self-evident. The law must be stated for the case in which he has only a short while to live. So our first text from the Mishnah teaches that because of the sanctity of life, the laws of Shabbat not to move material, not to remove the debris, are set aside if that life is in danger and even if the danger is not certain. The Talmud questions the need to restate such an obvious law, the law that saving a life overrides Shabbat law, even in cases where death is not certain, has already been taught in a previous text. The response is that this Mishnah is instructing us that even the preservation of life of a short duration, such as the life of one who has been crushed by fallen debris, is valued enough to require the setting aside of Shabbat law. Thus, not only is normal life to be preserved, but the implication here is that terminal life is well to be preserved. So with these two early texts in mind, and with those from the texts of Job and Ecclesiastes, Let me turn to three stories, which in good, true Jewish tradition seem to contradict that which we have just read, and as we progress, seem to bring these two together. So the first story is another Talmudic story. I'll read it to you. Rabbi, it begins, open your mouth that the fire may enter and you will die. He said to those who were speaking, "'It is better that he who gave my soul should take it away "'and let no one inflict injury on himself.'" The executioner asked him, "'Rabbi, if I intensify the fire "'and remove the mats of wool soaked in water "'that were placed on his heart "'in order to prolong his suffering, "'from your heart will you bring me to the world to come?' He said, "'Yes.'" Swear to me, said the executioner. He swore to him. The executioner immediately increased the flames and removed the mats from upon his heart. Rabbi Chanina, who was the rabbi who was standing to be burned at the stake, soul, speedily departed. Then the executioner leaped, falling into the fire. A heavenly voice went out and proclaimed, Rabbi Chanina and the executioner are invited into the afterlife." Rabbi Judah Hanasi wept and said, some may attain their world in but one moment while others require many years. A bit bizarre. Let me read two more and then we'll unpack these stories. The maid of Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi went up to the roof. She said, those on high are seeking the rabbi and those below are seeking the rabbi may it be God's will that those below overpower those on high. However, when she saw how he suffered so from repeatedly taking off and putting on his phylacteries each time he would enter the bathroom, she said, may it be God's will that those on high will overpower those below. However, the rabbis did not cease imploring God's mercy to keep him alive. She then took a pitcher and threw it down from the roof. They were silenced momentarily in their prayer to keep him alive. And the rabbi's soul departed." The last story. And then we'll talk about them. There is a story again from uh, a midrash, uh, written um, sometime later, probably in the 10th or 11th century. There is a story of a woman who grew very old. She came before Yossi ben Chalafta. She said to him, Rabbi, I've grown too old. Life is repugnant to me. I can taste neither food nor drink. I would like to depart from this world. He said to her, How is it that you have lived so long? She answered, Every day I am accustomed to go early to the synagogue, even if I must desist from something I like. He said, Refrained for three successive days from going to the synagogue. She went and did this, and on the third day, she became ill and died. These three stories from rabbinic literature relate to the question of compassion and euthanasia. In the first story, which deals with the cruel execution of Hanina ben Teradon arrested for teaching Torah, the Romans wanted to make him an example. Hence, they determined that he should suffer horribly before he died. They bound Torah scrolls to him, piled piled boughs around him and ignited them all. But lest the fire kill him too quickly, the Romans placed wet mats of wool on his body. Rabbi Hanina's students couldn't bear his suffering so that he suggested, so they suggested he do what was necessary to hasten his death. His response is instructive. Only God can make life and death decisions. Humans have no right to interfere," he says. He therefore was prepared to withstand whatever punishment the Romans would inflict upon him. Nevertheless, when the executioner, a Roman in an unusual display of compassion, offered to hasten his death to avoid unnecessary suffering, notice the words, are similar to words we use in the modern situation. Rabbi Hanina accepted and died quickly. This bizarre change of mind requires some explanation. Was it a moment of weakness that overcame him and compelled him to act contrary to his principles? Or is there some logic in his behavior? The legal implications of this story are discussed at length in the Talmud, but for our purposes it's enough to remember that even though he began saying that it was in God's hands to determine how long this would take, the process of burning at the stake, in the end, the suffering and the compassion, his suffering and the executioner's compassion, led him to change his mind. In the second story, it describes a rabbi's illness. We're told that the rabbi was Judah HaNasi, the great compiler editor of the Mishnah. We're told that he was ill and approaching death. And the sages, we're told in another section that I didn't share with you, proclaimed a fast, appealed for God's mercy, and announced that anyone who said that the rabbi was dying should they themselves be banished. The rabbi's maid initially placed her hope in the success of the students' prayers as opposed to what's called the powers on high who sought his death. However, upon noting the intensification of his pain, she reconsidered and wished for the success of the powers above. Yet as long as the students were engaged in prayer, his life was protected. She decided to disturb their prayer by creating a disruption. She threw a vase from the roof and it shattered noisily. The noise startled the students, causing them to momentarily break their focus on the prayers. And at that very moment, the rabbi died. Here again, we have a compassionate effort to terminate the life of a suffering, terminated, terminally ill person. Nowhere in the text, either in the section that I read to you or elsewhere, is the rabbi's maid criticized for her behavior. And the third story I shared with you tells of a woman who seeks to end her life because of the repugnance she feels in association with old age. Once again, this is a story written 1,400 years ago, but it should resonate with all of us who know of the elderly, who are stricken with dementia, Alzheimer's, and who wish to end their lives. She consults a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Yossi, who devises a plan by which she might fulfill her desire. Revealing that synagogue attendance was a regular part of her life, he suggests that she refrain from going for three consecutive days. This proves effective and she dies. Unlike the first two stories that I shared with you, in this one, a rabbi assists a woman in a request to die. Now, based on these stories, it would seem that (coughs) Jewish tradition illustrates the permissibility of euthanasia, of ending one's life in the midst of extreme pain, at least in some circumstances. However, notwithstanding these stories, it should be noticed that earlier sections that I read to you from the Mishnah seem to indicate that it is not. And so we have an interesting tension between the law that I read to you from the Mishnah and the lore, the stories that I read to you. So let's proceed and see if we can find any kind of uh, closure to the Jewish discussion about this. I'm going to go back to Talmud again, a legal document. The legal document is written in Babylonia, written between the 3rd and 6th century, and then redacted in the 6th and 7th century of the Common Era. So it lists four rules. A goseis, a Hebrew word meaning someone on the brink of death, is regarded as a living person in all respects. We do not tie up his cheekbones or stop up his apertures or place a metal vessel or anything which chills on his stomach. We may not move him or place him on sand or salt until he dies. We may not close the eyes of a dying man Whoever touches or moves him is guilty of bloodshed. Rabbi Meir used to say he can be compared to a lamp which is dripping. Should a man touch it, it extinguishes. Similarly, whoever closes the eye of a dying man is considered to have taken his life. This list of laws concerning a dying person, despite his terminal condition, he is to be regarded as a living being and any act which hastens his demise is tantamount to murder. But in the story I read to you earlier, his maid acting on behalf of Yehuda Nasi, acted in a way which enabled him to die. The elderly woman who saw herself as her condition was a thung- which an evade and not terminal illness, yet Rabbi Yossi offered counsel on how to end her life. Again, we come to attention in the Jewish experience. The sacred texts tell us that life and death are in the hands of God. But our human reality tells us that as merciful and compassionate as God is, illness leads to great pain. And our humanity leads us to want to relieve someone of that pain. Let me share with you two other texts. This is not a legal text, but again, Um, an Agotic text, a story in a sense. If we are causing one not to die quickly, such as one who is a gosseis, near death, and nearby someone is chopping wood and his soul is not able to depart, we remove the wood chopper from there. We also don't place salt on his tongue to prevent him from dying. However, if the ghost says says he cannot die unless he is moved elsewhere, he is not moved. In the 15th century, the following was written. It is prohibited to hasten the death process. But if there is anything which causes a hindrance to the departure of the soul, such as the presence near the patient's house of a knocking noise like wood chopping, or if there is salt on the patient's tongue and these hinder the soul's departure it is permissible to remove them from there because no act is involved with this at all but only the removal of the impediments to death so these later authorities understood the tension between the biblical the ancient legal and and agotic things, and they introduced a new legal concept, the prohibition to prevent someone from dying quickly. In medieval times, it was believed that certain noises or substances, such as the noise of a woodchopper or the taste of salt, could prevent a soul from departing. These must be removed to allow death to take its natural course. And on this basis, the medieval Jewish writers distinguished between hastening death and removing the impediments to death. And there, while there may be a semantic difference between the above phrases, in either case, death will occur later if not for human intervention. And we might also distinguish between those two categories, referring to them as active or passive euthanasia. In addition, the first text prohibits introducing impediments to death and in certain cases advocates for their removal. Both these latter texts agree that moving the dying person, the ghost hastens his death and both recognize that there are occasions in which humans may not interfere in the natural process of dying. I know this may not sound clear to you, my listeners, but in the Jewish world we live with the ambiguity and we struggle with trying to affirm God's role in our lives and trying to use the ancient tradition to make modern decisions. I began with the story of a woman who's going overseas to end her life, who does not want to live the last days of her life in agony. I don't know if I support her decision, but I understand her decision. And so too it is with most ethical decisions. We understand the need for someone to alleviate themselves from potential pain, even if we don't support them. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, this is Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a replay of this show on podcast on the CHRI website or on iTunes. Good morning and Shalom.